This is the Shaky Town Radio Hour. I'm one of your hosts, Brody Foster Hubbard, along with Gene George. We talk with actors, comedians, filmmakers, musicians, and other artists about trying to stay creative while earning a living in the city of Los Angeles, California. Right now, you're listening to the band Green Screen Door. This is their score for the movie Well of the Beast. This piece is called Long Walk in an Industrial Countryside. If you go to shakytownradio.com, we'll link you to their band camp page, their blog, and their Facebook. Hi, this is Gene. We're going to be listening to a conversation with Emmett Casey, the director of the film Well of the Beast, starring our own Brody Foster Hubbard. Uh, he also has a Kickstarter page that we'd like you to visit and take a look at, support uh, Mirror and Missile, his uh, new uh, project that he's working on, and uh, be going there in three, in two, one, now. The Shaky Town Radio Hour is on the air. I am Gene George. I am Brody Foster Hubbard. I am wearing Smurfs briefs that were a gift from my brother-in-law for last Christmas. They do not have anything to do with the movie, and I feel comfortable wearing them. Both wait physically... Minute, wait, a minute, wait a minute. They do have something to do with the movie, as the movie is licensed from the Smurfs brand. True, but this was before... Tangentially. This was before the tra- trailer even came out. I don't care. They still had to negotiate with Peo, or the artist who created the Smurfs, or his estate. I don't even know if he's alive. So they do tangentially have something to do with the brand. Okay. Let's bring Emmett into this, because this is about filmmaking. It is. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you introduce Emmett. All right. I'll let you introduce the last two guests, and maybe I'll do the next couple. All right. Fair enough. Um, today in our studio... And I did say that with an H. Uh, we have filmmaker, writer, director, producer, occasional sound man for actually one of our previous guests, Dirk Boberg and, and uh, Steve Yeager. And technically our podcast just a couple minutes ago. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, actually. And um, the first person to really direct me in a, uh, a, a, a meaty role, uh, <laughs> uh, we have here Emmett Casey. Hello, it's good to be here. Welcome. I heard you were undirectorable. Oh, he's quite undirectorable. <laughs> Was he hard to work with? Uh, very difficult, Brody. <laughs> <laughs> Brody comes with such a negative attitude towards everything. <laughs> he's a little intimidating, also. Like when he gets on the set, like he shows up, and the first thing he said was like, "Hey, I need a uh, for." Vodka, cranberry juices now, and <laughs> <laughs> so he was. Uh, he was uh, just like uh, uh, what's his face. Um, his name's gonna escape me. Uh, uh, wall-eyed actor in a bunch of westerns. Man, oh man, it's killing me. It's gonna kill me. Jack Elam. Jack Elam. Just like that. Yeah. <laughs> My buddy Vic worked with Jack Elam on a on a Bonanza, the Horror Returns, some Bonanza TV movie, and uh, <laughs> his his wife, who was his handler, basically said, um, "Don't let him into the vodka <laughs> until after lunch." <laughs> oh, 
Man, I wish I wish Hollywood was like old Hollywood where everyone was like drinking. It was like eleven o'clock, and it was like, oh, cocktail break now. And like, <laughs> you know, but it, it, it kind of was like that on set sometimes. Oh, certain, well. <laughs> certain individuals who I won't name, but they they might be on screen with me a lot. Um, or behind the camera. Hmm? I, I just remember yeah. somebody getting a fifth of something. Oh yeah, that was was that the first day of shooting or something <laughs> like that? It was like rapid. Well, I got a fifth of whiskey, and we went out there, and it was it was more like a, you know half of a fifth of whiskey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just think, but see, I think old Hollywood because it was basically a machine. Because you look at, like, you look at the IMDb of I don't know, like, just off the top of my head, like a Gregory Peck or something. They've got like seven hundred movies, you know. They did, yeah. they, they did like, they did like a movie like a month, you know, or a movie, a two or three movies a month, especially like those westerns and stuff, you know. Yeah. You, why not drink? People would get under these contracts, and it was just like. You work nonstop. Yeah. So what are you going to do at night? You're going to do a bunch of drugs to stay up. Right. And you're just going to drink all the right. time. Right. Benny's. We're going to pop Benny's. <laughs> I mean Benny from L.A. Law. Oh. Anyway. No. I thought you meant Benny Hinn. No, Benny Hill. Anyway. But yeah, I, I think it was just like, I mean, like any factory, all those like blue collar factory workers. What do you yeah. do after a hard day? Uh, you, exactly. You go out and you, you know, get into fights and drink and. There's Screw still, whatever you can. There's still parts of the world where it's like that. Like, um, I know there's a, a Korean filmmaker that I really like who he said he didn't make his first film until it was his like hundred and first film that he had directed in his life. And then he was like, "Oh, I'm finally going to make uh, a movie for myself now." Type of a deal. holy and moly! That, like that. That's incredible to me. Yeah. That, you can make a hundred movies in twenty years, but in a way, doesn't that make like doesn't that make like your classic auteurs, your your Hitchcocks and your and your um, Orson Welles, those guys had to be like super crazy filmmakers, you know? Because Hitchcock made Hitchcock movies for a very long time, you know. I mean, he did what he wanted to do versus what the studio told him right. to. But then yeah. you have people like Joe Dorowski, who's made like what four movies? Uh, I think he's made. Six or seven. Okay. I think only only like four are released on DVD right. and available. And um, that's over like 40, 50 years? Yeah. But he's also prolific in other ways. Like he's an alchemist and a writer and an illustrator and yeah. a playwright and poet. You know, always. Film is just another of his media. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah, Brody. I'm not picking on him. It's actually Emmett who turned me on to Jodorowsky. Fair enough. Yeah, which, and now you're bad mouthing him. <laughs> I I I actually got uh, my wife to watch. Uh, well, I went to the it was the new I think the new Beverly we had the double feature that um, Adam Brooks who's also in uh, Well of the Beast, which is the name of the the feature that we've talked about on this show before, and which Emmett uh, directed and adapted from writings. Which we'll talk about that in a bit, but uh, Adam took me to, uh, or he, I think Adam got me out to the New Beverly to see the double feature, Holy Mountain and uh, El Topo, and it changed my life. It was really awesome. I mean, um, I can't imagine watching both of those. I had to miss that, and then watching those movies back to back on a big screen. Yeah. I'm sure, you just come out and you're just like, <laughs> uh, I don't understand reality anymore. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> it's like. It's like watching a Fellini film on crack, you know. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. But had you had any background in, you know, art cinema or experimental cinema before that, Brody? Um, 
I'm, I'm Were you cultured before that? You've got to ask Brody, because he is from Arizona, man. I mean, seriously. Oh, I noticed. <laughs> it's, I think I'm one of the first guests that's not from Arizona. <laughs> we have had a... Well, I think I think there's a lot of folks from Arizona around here. No, we've had a ton of guests who aren't from Arizona. Yeah, yeah. Last couple weeks, though, that's fair. It has I'm been just, very Arizona-centric. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, I, there was some truth in your statement. I was seeking the kernel of truth in your statement. <laughs> um... Which actually leads me to ask you if you could tell me a little bit about tell, and you can tell Gene too. Don't tell me. Um, where where were you before you got here? Where were you born? I was born in Washington State, and um, for the most part, I grew up in Gig Harbor and um, spent a lot of time in Tacoma during high school, which is like uh, south of Seattle. Yeah, and I went to Tacoma School of the Arts, which was one of those experimental magnet schools. I guess still is. It's still around. Um, yeah, so lots of kids with, uh, you know, bright green hair and uh, <laughs> you know, vibrant purple sweatshirts and that kind of stuff. The artsy type, the blue mm, scare yes. quotes. Yeah, and I I was definitely the little nerdy kid that read too much Tolkien. And, <laughs> you know. Like to talk about the Silmarillion and that kind of stuff. Nice. Oh, so hardcore Tolkien. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. way hardcore. Yeah. Like uh, complete history of Middle Earth, read several I'm, times. I'm down. I'm down with it. Yeah, it's Silmarillion. You know what? The Silmarillion bored me to tears. In his, I read it. But it's as, <laughs> but you know what? It's like, but it's like, you know what? It was like reading. Like if you read, like read the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. It's like the adventure, I, I, and I understand the importance of it because it's the underlying mythos behind the whole Lord of the Rings thing. But it was about as boring as the Bible to me. If you read like awesome Bible stories and then you read like the actual Bible, yeah, you know, it's kind of see. Like, I think the Bible's fantastic, and I never liked the the kiddie Bible stories. I thought they were all really like, right. No, like, they are. They are. But I guess I guess that's not quite the right. Like my favorite parts about The Hobbit are like where it's just like you know, I don't know, smoking pipes. Like the downtimes, not the adventure scenes. Like you know, they go on an adventure right. and then they like, you know, chill for a while and then they they go on a little bit more of the adventure. Then they just hang out in Lake Town. Yeah, um, and the, that's true. It's stuff like that that I'm like, oh yeah, this is really good. When when Tolkien just kind of gets all. Uh, fluttery with his writing. Well, it's the fully realized world thing that's really yeah. attractive, and but but seeing the underpinnings of the world, and that's the Silmarillion yeah. for me. Is I don't need to see I don't need to see the guts. Guts. The outer part is okay for me. I guess is the point. I get, yeah. it, but I totally get it. And and the commitment to that is really really cool. But man, oh man, there, it was drived for me. In the Silmarillion, there's this whole like underlying uh, current theme. That, that takes uh, Catholicism in its view and definitely like projects onto it this artist statement where all of creation is based on it's it's essentially like a Milton type understanding but add art to the factor so there's this huge like everything is created and the creation is what counts the smiths and craft work is what counts and the like the universe is created through music. Anyway, it's it's definitely you know if you like to read like classic literature, then you might like it. It's not oh yeah a fantasy type. No no no, uh, and that's what I'm saying is it wasn't about the fantasy. But see yeah. but see I think there you may have hit the crux of my problem with it is 
the Silmarillion is the tools from which the the you know Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit were were built. Well, I'm more not interested. The Hobbit. I well, would, the I, Hobbit. Yeah. The Hobbit's an option, <laughs> but I'm just saying most people get into Tolkien via the Hobbit, and then they get into the Lord of the Rings, and then if they're really hardcore, they get into the Silmarillion, and then if they're really stupid hardcore, they read all the crap that you know Christopher. Christopher. Is yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, See, I'm I, I'm more happy with the creation that was based off of his research into linguistics and his research into poetry and you know all of the you know the Kalevala and the Finnish sagas and things like that. That to me, the finished meal is better than looking at all the stuff in the kitchen. That's all. I just I just think that it's like I don't necessarily view it, and I don't know if he viewed it as being the kitchen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he, I think, I think that the general, attention. yeah. Like anyway, but it's. Um, it was definitely that was my high school. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I had this argument way too much with, with the, you know, the 10 other people that were like, I saw the movie and it was so good. Can you explain to me why this happened? And I'm like, well, you see, in the beginning was Eru, the one who in the tongue of the Noldor was Ilavatar. And, and then they just look at you like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I like. Uh, punk rock and the movie, the <laughs> now, are you talking about the are you talking about Peter Jackson's movies or the Bakshi movie oh Peter Jackson at that time unfortunately no one I, I tried to push those but uh, no one <laughs> liked them as much I was like are you kidding at least the songs are in them <laughs> right, right, right. yeah I saw the Bakshi movie I saw the Bakshi movie when I was like I wanted to come out in like 77 or something like that or 70 I mean it was like I saw it at the Westminster Mall when I was a little little kid and I just remember the rotoscoping being like completely throwing me off because I, I did not like it. I remember thinking it was terrifying when I saw it as yeah, a child. Like, I, there's I, something I, so sinister about like yeah. shadows that aren't like the shadows are so real yeah. and yet animated at the same time. You get confused. Like yeah. your young mind is like can't grasp what it's seen. Yeah, that was it was it was it was very off-putting. I rewatched Blade Runner recently, and I hadn't seen it since high school, and I knew I liked it, mm-hmm. but um, I didn't realize how confusing the frames are. Yeah, it's like that for for being such like a, a pop culture cult stereotype of what the like cult film is. Right. Mm-hmm. It's such a confusing movie when you look yeah. at it. It's like your eye is directed to one thing that counts, like the ship going through space, okay, or or Harrison Ford's face. But the rest of the frame is like, oh, yeah. it's it's almost worse than a Wong Kar Wai film. It's like, <laughs> what is happening? I I it really um yeah kind of my mind. That's... Totally agree. Yeah, I watched Blade Runner in high school with a group of friends at uh, our friend Ali Manch's house. And the we were barely paying attention to it. It was really hard to follow. And um, well, seeing it on the small screen too is yeah ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, I, I again, I'm dating myself here, but I saw it in the theater, mm-hmm. and it was. I mean, I, I think you're, you're right. There's if you if you watch it and you pay attention, you know what's going on and you know what you're supposed to look at. But yeah, when it, it's more confusing than an actual cityscape of all the stuff going on. I mean, intentionally so, but everything is just completely crammed to the gills. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a, of a comparison. Like a magic eye painting. There's all kinds of crap going on, and if you focus, you can see what's supposed to yeah. happen, but yeah. Agreed. And just junk. Well, you know, because that's the Philip K. Dick, the whole Kipple thing from, yeah. from the book. It's just... 
trash and stuff and things and just people accumulate this agglomeration of garbage around them. So I think they got that right. I hear that he might be making a prequel or a sequel or yeah. a remake. Ridley Scott might be. Yeah, that, that, that news uh, came down be the wire this week. It'll this be interesting, week. yeah. I wonder if he can... He hasn't worked in... in uh, his early films are so heavy with shadows and like these crushed blacks that are just gone. Um, and I wonder if he could bring that back for the Alien sequel or whatever he's also doing. Yeah. Uh, anyway... Film nerd talk. <laughs> that's, that's we're all. That's what uh, my life boils down to, basically. <laughs> no, I, I, I enjoy that talk. Can't speak for Brody. So, when did? At what point did you go from uh, straight from Tacoma to LA, or is there some other stops along the way? Uh, I went. To, no, I went. I went to school in Chapman or at Chapman. I mm-hmm. guess. I guess I went in Chapman. That, that sounds pretty good. Um, the and that's in Orange, um, yeah. and so I was there for four years. You know, spent most of my time in the library, and uh, yeah. <laughs> and there and there was a quite a little community of filmmakers that came out of there. There was there is a fantastic um, some when I came in, they had just pumped all this money into the film school, and this new building was being created, um, and so people that had come there were usually people that either had gotten large scholarships or had been turned down from the larger schools or whatever. And they're just a really good creative bunch of people and students there. Um, And a lot of us just band together and kind of made made ourselves push each other and versus what the school was necessarily doing, which, (laughs) I mean, Chapman's great with facilities and now it is and what what it has um it's definitely weak on some other sides and it's it's definitely up to the students to make the school what it is Uh, but that i guess that might be it with any university i've never gone to another university so i don't know but it you know classes are what you make them right right i think that's the secret of that's the secret of college life is you are no longer Directed to learn specific things, except you know, for your major, if you're going to try and matriculate. So, the amazing thing was the students that didn't realize that because it's in orange, oh, yeah. and so you have all these like, I mean, not to stereotype, but these kind of no, feel free, you know, airhead, blonde, good-looking men and women that come in and mm-hmm. are they need their college education and they're not worried about because mom and dad are paying for it, and then they get their jobs at the company business and they're set, right? And they come in and. The worst part was like, I, I was really excited for college because I wanted to have these conversations in classrooms and yeah. discuss these really right. interesting ideas. And I was like, this is going to be great. Small classrooms, like that's what Chapman offers. The problem is when you have 20 people in a classroom and only 18 of them have anything, in, or I mean only two of them have anything interesting yeah. to say and 18 of them are like, want to talk. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like it's always the people that you don't want to hear that want to speak a lot. <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah, so it was uh, it was all right. Yeah, <laughs> and then after that, I came up to Los Angeles, and I've uh, been living here, working here ever since. And uh, so, how many years is that now that you've been here? Two or three. Wow, okay. I, I kind of... I don't know. <laughs> I, I finished college and I stopped 
counting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's the other. That's the other secret about college life is pretty much once you hit twenty one, nothing really matters until you're like forty. <laughs> the time just goes, and you do what you do, and then. I wonder how much of that has to do with substance abuse, but. <laughs> well, you might. No, I'm not saying you. I, Forgetting lost time is one thing, but like the importance of because like when you're you know when you're a teenager you're like I'm gonna be 18 I'm gonna be free or whatever you know or I'm gonna be 21 and I'll be able to drink and you won't be able to tell me what to do and then like once you're 21 you're like well, I gotta find an apartment I gotta work do whatever yeah. and then 40 comes along and people make you pay attention to that and 50 comes along <laughs> and they make you pay attention to that other than that you're like I don't care like ask me how old I am Brody how old are you Gene uh, I think I'm 42. Okay. I'm going to have to do the math in my head. See, that's my point. My point is, is if somebody asks you when you're like, you know, when you're a teenager, how old are you? You're like 13. And you're like, oh, sweet. I'm a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like that. <laughs> I remember being, being 16 and thinking that like 17, and I'm pretty sure it was the most exciting year of my life because I could finally get into rated R movies by myself without hassle. Yeah. And like, you look young though, right? Oh, yeah. yeah see, I looked so young. That's why I had to grow a beard. <laughs> right there with you. Yeah, see, I I have look red particular. hair for people out there in Radioland, and uh, and no oh, redheads look old. We're going to talk sure. about redheads soon. Oh, are we? Because you, know, <laughs> you know what we got. We got well, oh. let's, let, let's say now, because I do want to know where in the timeline this fell. Uh, there's an MIA video uh, for Born Free, and the premise of the video is... Um, it's a glimpse of a genocide happening, but instead of people of color, as you would usually see a genocide being committed against, it's committed against redheads. People, people of lack of color. Yes, and and Emmett <laughs> is one of these people in, in this video. Uh, I am one of the people in that yeah. video. Tell us about how that happened. Um, my good friend Sebastian uh, was working on it and called me in and for some reason I thought I was going to get like interviewed for a, a PA job or something and I was like finally some work awesome like this is going to be a blast and and he's like oh no uh, we we you know you and I noticed I looked around and noticed that everyone else was redhead and I was significantly older than a lot of people and like had a beard and stuff and and the casting director is all like, "You gonna are you willing to shave?" And I'm like, "Absolutely not!" Like, are you kidding? Like, <laughs> and and uh, but um, the director came over and he's a really cool dude and uh, he was all like, um, he goes, "Oh, he's French." He's like, "Oh yeah, you look like uh, you know like a '70s rebel." And I'm like, "Okay, cool." So, <laughs> That's what I was going for. I think I had like a G jacket on or something. So. <laughs> They, uh, yeah, they casted me, and I'm in the cage on the bus, and then I also play a twin in the video or something, because I'm outside the bus throwing junk at the bus also <laughs> as it drives by with me in it. So, were you um, redheaded there, too? Uh, yeah. So you were like the Quizzling. You were like... I'm like... I, I think I started the Insurgence or something, you know? <laughs> Eat yourself loathing. Yeah. Uh. And uh, it was it was a lot of fun. There was this mine scene where there's a bunch of, like a minefield, and they have us run across it. And like um, there's only like two stunt doubles there, and they're like, "Okay, don't veer <laughs> from this line. Don't veer from this line. Nice. Go." <laughs> it's pretty funny because I can't run worse shits, and I'm like definitely featured in the video. Like, <laughs> you know, I kind of run like Bigfoot or something, you know, in the famous uh, <laughs> with your arms like really. Slopey down. Kind of looking back over my shoulder and stuff. 
Uh, but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and um, ended up uh, meeting MIA at a rap party, and she's a cool girl, and uh, yeah. And that was like one of the most kind of controversial videos of that year. Yeah, I think so. Well, I think it's the first uh, the first video where they advocated killing redheaded people, which we all know now is, you know. Pretty standard. Yes. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty for it myself. I'm. Uh... <laughs> You're self-loathing. Yeah. We're shaving Emmett after this. Uh, right. Right. Exactly. Recording. Um, so I would like to talk about your thesis film, uh, Peter oh. and the Mischievous Hanky. Yes, that movie. Uh, it's a half an hour short film. Um, that's a, a children's film, I guess. Um, it, it's it's very much though when you say children's film it's uh, the children's films that I think uh, all of us actually enjoyed when we were kids which was like the darker exactly. side of things exactly what I wanted to do is like I found this like underlying theme in in like uh, these late seventies early eighties children's movies um, that was kind of like this dark artistic. Venture. There was a time when, you know, and definitely spearheaded by Henson, who was like, you know, started out making weird experimental films. Like, yeah. you can see these movies that are straight out, like, avant-garde works of art. And um, and then kind of veered into his, his puppetry and stuff. And um, just, and you know, these weird movies from the 1980s that are kind of dark and hit this, you know, kind of fairy tale subconscious... But then there's also these movies I stumbled upon in, in research by this Russian uh, production studio called Gorky's Studio um, that came, I think their their idea was they were going to compete with uh, live action Disney movies. Okay. Like, so, so they got a bunch of money from the government, but in order to do that, they had to do Russian fairy tales. So they made this slew of like hundreds of these like literally hundreds because they were just shooting them out right, right, right. Uh, hundreds of these um, Russian fairy tale movies and they're fantastically bizarre like just absolutely you know Eastern European yeah fairy tales are just weird <laughs> yeah flying stew pots and yeah. it's just weird and it, bullshit. it just happens out of nowhere it's such <laughs> right, like right. a like this you know you feel like you're reading like some Jungian text or something it's just like <laughs> yeah. and uh it's um so that and then I also noticed this underlying current in like famed art house film directors where they always kind of tend to do this children's movie at one point in their life even if it wasn't directed towards children um you know like uh Tarkovsky started with uh Steamroller and the Violin and uh, my favorite Bergman film is Fanny and Alexander or television show. No, so it's, yeah, it's just a, so it's this weird children's film that's maybe not for children with all these, you know, underlining. I think it's really hilariously sexual, but no one else does. <laughs> I, I just tried to put as many like phallic and vaginal symbols in as possible and no one else finds it funny but <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's pretty fun it, it's uh, well if it's, it's a kids movies it's wee wee's and vaginas yeah so. exactly cut winkles but vagina what was it cut winkles cut winkles I never heard that. Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure it's a, f- a friend just made it up. So <laughs> fair enough. Uh, but um, yeah, it's it's fun, and uh, 
There's some the kid. Uh, his name is Xander Flores. Uh, he was he's really good in it. And uh, there's this guy Guy Perry, who's uh, in it and plays this kind of mysterious. Uh, his name's the Stranger, and he used to be a stork or whatever. And then uh, Sheila Vand, who has since gone on to uh, some major play productions. She was on Broadway recently, and she did a underground theater piece called Sneaky Nietzsche last year that was in Los Angeles. Um, she's in it, and she's fantastic. And so it was just a good a good time, a good thesis, a good thing to end Chapman with and kind of give him the slug in the face. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't want <laughs> me to make it. Like, I had to really fight to, like, get it made and, like, convince them that I knew what <laughs> I was doing and talking about. And they didn't give a crap, and they are like, you know... I remember specifically one phone conversation... The guy brought up, uh, you know, um, Joseph Campbell. And I just, I had just read like a bunch of Joseph Campbell. So I started being like, exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. See, this is how it fits this, this, and this. And he's like, oh no, but but a movie needs structure and needs this and that. And I was like, there is structure. You just, <laughs> I, you know, of course there's structure. You, anyway. I was hoping he would be like, no, Joseph Campbell, I hate that bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh. I think the worst, you know, the, the and here, here we come. I think George Lucas and friggin' Star Wars has done the biggest disservice to Joseph Campbell in the entire history of filmmaking. Because everybody then does the whole comparison of the hero's journey with Star Wars, which is a shitty, shitty movie, as we have talked about before. <laughs> well, the best, the best uh, part about Joseph Campbell is that like his his structures like change chapter to chapter, and that's like the point. He's like, oh, see how it, this is similar, but it's not really similar because it can also be like this. And that doesn't have to happen because right. I've also seen this happen. And you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. So now you're just telling me all the myths you know. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, that's the, yeah. I mean, because that's the thing when you're talking about anthropology, you're talking about studying pretty much everything that people have ever done ever, all with all the contradictions and all the, the you know, the you know, warts and all, I guess, if I was going to sum it up cliche wise. Um, yeah. So. Anything anyone's ever thought of or said to another person, as contradictory as that could possibly be, a system of classification for that basically comes down to people like to talk about stuff that they're interested in, and they do it a lot of different ways. <laughs> Here are some of the ways. <laughs> and it's like, but you can't sell that to someone. You have to, you know, people also need structure or like structure. People are drawn to structure, which is why you see faces in paint in the wall <laughs> yeah i i had a funny uh instance that reminds me of my friend had done like some i was visiting a friend in portland and he had done some like abstract painting that was on the wall or something just for fun and goofing around and his family came over and his family was like oh this is so cool and they had like i think it was his sister and uh brother-in-law and like their two kids and the brother-in-law took it down and was like, oh, yeah, these are really fun. See, you have to, like, try to find stuff in it. Like, <laughs> see, I see a face here. <laughs> and what do you see? Do you see a dog or something? Like, oh, yeah, I see it here. And that's it was just abstract, like... That's what abstract oh. paintings about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's why every time I look at a Jackson Pollock painting, I think, I see a drunk dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh. 
So well, what happens with, um, for those who don't know, including me, what happens with a thesis film? Like, besides, I mean, do you get to... Uh, well, um, you show it at the school, mm-hmm. and then you complete school. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, you know, if you have money, uh, you could submit it to film festivals. Uh, <laughs> I don't have money. Um, luckily, the school paid for me to submit to a couple, but uh, it didn't get accepted and really turned me off from film festivals. Oh, wow. um, I got notes back that were clear, like, because sometimes film festivals, they're like screeners will give you notes back and stuff. Um, and I got notes back, and it was clear that they just didn't get it or didn't watch it all the way. Mm-hmm. Which I understand. Like, I've, I actually, at the time that I was getting these notes back, I was working for a company and I was occasionally screening uh, stuff for a film festival. And it, it's clear, like, yeah, you have to watch a shitload of movies that are not very good for the most part because everyone and their mother is a filmmaker and everyone and their mother has a camera and is going to go do it. Um, but simultaneously, when there was notes that were just like, uh, he transitions with dancers through every scene, and I'm like, no, there's dancers in one scene uh <laughs> did you watch it <laughs> it's just it's just kinda, was the dvd skipping i was like <laughs> you just watch the same scene over and over again yeah so i just thought okay i don't know if i'm gonna pay 50 dollars to have someone not watch my movie <laughs> i better just leave it in a box so now it sits in a box and occasionally i'll, I'll take it on screen at some place if, if i can right. um but yeah, it's it's a weird uh, system out there, the independent film world. Uh, definitely. Yeah, we, we talked a little uh, with uh, one of our previous guests, Joe Wilson, had, had talked about that there's a lot of scams out there. Oh, yeah. Um, did you ever fall victim or almost? No, because I'm like, I don't know. I, I'm not necessarily down on my films. I just understand that there's like a niche market for them. So it's like. If, if someone's like, oh, I'm interested in, in your movie, I'm like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> <laughs> you're like immediately, you're like immediately suspicious. Yeah. See, but I think that's awesome. I think that's the way to be in a lot of ways because, you know, uh, like you say, there's been kind of democratization of, you know, art, I guess, through the internet and through everyone being, having access to video cameras and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I, I think... Just like any gold rush, there's always going to be the people, the grifters are going to make money off of, you know, people who think that they have, you know, they want to be a filmmaker. So I think having a, you know, suspicion is probably a better way to live than being complete. No, no, I mean, a completely paranoid, like (laughs) ironclad gates never come down suspicion. I think that that, you know, not to veer, but to veer that subject of like, um, this yeah internet phenomenon democracy of filmmaking is to me really um in some ways liberating in some ways really upsetting that instead of what you feel should have happened is is the quality of filmmaking goes up it feels like quite the opposite has happened where because everyone's a filmmaker they want to see something that they could make themselves in some ways, you know, like that's that's what I've experienced at least with like you know, screening DVDs and talking to other people, and I'm like, that movie was really bad, and I really like this one, and other people are like, just the opposite. Um, I feel like what it is is like people 
they want they want to have that structure. They want to have oh, I've I've read one, two, three books on screenwriting. I know what a green, good screenplay is, despite what the movie is. That's what I'm looking for, or you know, and um, so it. I'm I'm interested in in making movies that are movies that I would want to see, which are movies where the thoughts are maybe more interesting than uh, than. I don't know the immediate uh, satisfaction. I don't know if that makes well, any I, sense. You're, 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 um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think you're. Yeah. Ha- having been involved in one of your films and having seen a lot of your work, it's it's not it's not a like a popcorn movie straight up narrative always. I mean, or maybe at all. Well, the Beast is definitely narrative, but um, what I've seen of your work, it, it's it's like, trippy, dreamy. I know that you're very much into um, kind of symbolism. Yes, but also the word I want to say is ethereal. Maybe okay. symbolism in a classical sense. That'd yeah. be cool. Like if it, if I was like a, a symbolist filmmaker, that would be pretty <laughs> cool. <laughs> I'm interested in the platonic ideal of things. <laughs> uh, yeah. Is that fair to say? No. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I don't know. It, it's yeah. I just want to make movies that are interesting. But I it I would like to make. I mean, the biggest in the experimental world, avant-garde world, which hates both those terms. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> they, but experimental and avant-garde artists tend to hate a lot of different yeah, things. Yeah, they just don't like terms in general. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like a lot of things, too. <laughs> the, like the, the classic expression is like, okay, just as there is a narrative writing form like the novel, there is a poetic filmmaking form, you know, um, where it is more concerned with uh, patterns and rhymes and textures and rhythms than it is to express your idea than it is necessarily with a narrative, even though a story may be there. Um, I'm interested in trying to combine the two to make, like, I love narrative poems. I love, like, epic narrative poems where at times at times you're reading The Odyssey or something like that and you're, like, overwhelmed with how expressive and symbolic Homer suddenly becomes and like it's like you clearly just wrote this to be flowery and because this is what it feels like and, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's these like yeah weird like little you know sections that don't follow the story and then all of a sudden it hops over here and gives you this kind of like bump on your side and I don't know that that always is my favorite part so if I can yeah. make something like that. But I think the I think the the epic poem in is is a really good counterpoint to the democratization of of the arts in general and the internet because that, you know, the Odyssey, let's just say or the Iliad or whatever, those were at one time d- democratic literally, quite literally in ancient Greece, the <laughs> foundations of democracy. <laughs> But they were also theater for the people, history and entertainment. Mm-hmm. But they were also honed by lots of different people, you know, reading that over and over again and getting to the parts which were really entertaining and really touching or whatever they are. So, so simultaneously, they are both very democratic and very, um, I won't say elitist because that's not right, but, but they were crafted, well crafted. Mm-hmm. So I think you, you go to school to learn to be a filmmaker so that you can make films that are um, rich and symbolic for you, there's 
this groundswell of people who are making whatever they're making, whether they, they want to be commercially successful or they want to put art out there. But I don't think it's gone through the same process necessarily of being honed to a point where it is a piece of art or even a product, you know? Yeah. I, I think there's a, there's I a think weird... it started to be, I think, you know, I mean, film's only what, 120 sure. years old or whatever. Sure, yeah. And they, I think there was a point, there was this weird point, And unfortunately I think it gets wiped over and overlooked because of what was happening socially, which obviously is connected to it. But I think there was this point in the late sixties, early seventies where, and maybe to the end of the seventies where people started saying like, okay, like we've we've done enough of this that we know what it what it can be and we're starting to whittle things down and, and make these huge things that are both, you know, um to steal Brackage's phrase, like cultural dances. Mm-hmm. You know, these are these are tribal dances. Like Star Wars is is a good myth of our time because it everyone tends to go to it and like it. Now it's not necessarily a good piece of art because art is not a tribal dance art is a dance of the individual right and um but there was this time when everyone saw what that was and started doing it so much and it had been done and somehow i don't know what happened but anyway everything (laughs) just went to hell (laughs) now i'm sorry go ahead well i think i think part of the problem is like you say film as an art is 120 years old so there's certainly a level, but but it also required up until fairly recently, it required my, my wife is a is a photographer, and and you know, an art photographer, and but she has to know the nuts and bolts of how a camera works, and if you're doing, you know, really precise photography, you you have to be a technician as well as an artist. Mm-hmm. So you have to have a tech and film, you know, up until a point and shoot video cameras with all kinds of gugas that kept things in focus and lighting relatively good you still need to be a technician in order to do your any art i guess you had to be a technician except for maybe spoken word spontaneous performance or you know things and like even that then you should be you should be you oh, should yeah, be yeah. a craftsman of, you, of your stand, work right? but i but i said improv and stand-up yeah, comedy yeah. all i need to do for a stand-up comedy show is to show up and want to talk about something all I need to do for an improv show is to show up and and mm-hmm. want to interact with people. You know, ultimately, you know, I could be the best whistler in the world, but I'm never going to be first chair, you know, violin player. So there's a technical aspect to that art that you have to master or at least be competent at before you can start barfing out whatever art you want to barf out. Now it just seems like you can barf it out. You mm-hmm. know, you you, being, you can yeah. and and. People have looked at enough barf that they start thinking, oh, that's just the wall. So, like, what a pretty house. Your barf just happens to be red. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Well, but I think that I think that, that 70s, that, because because in all forms of film, everybody shows that, you know, that, that, that mid-60s to, to, like, 1980, let's just say, that a, a lot of people hold that up as... You know, narrative film was great. Experimental film was great. I mean, there was a lot of there were a lot of you know directors and actors that came up during that time. Where if you wanted a great everyman story, there was you know Scorsese doing these things, and you know it's just like I don't know what I don't know where the trip hammer was that fell that screwed stuff up. Yeah, but. and I'm not totally knocking films since then. There's definitely been like one of my favorite filmmakers, Leo's Carax, is like 
is definitely born in the like cinematically born in the 80s and you know developing through now and um but it was yeah there's some weird smorgasbord of possibilities of what it could be you can find us on the internet at shakytownradio.com you can twitter us at at shakytownradio you can like us on Facebook at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash shakytownradio. Send us an email at shakytownradio at gmail.com or call us on the Shakytown Radio hotline at 626-66-SHAKE. That's 667-4253. That's the same number. Hi, I'm Calico Cooper, and my voice will beat your children. And you're listening to Shakytown Radio Hour. Okay, so informed by all those things that we were talking about, tell me about your first feature, Glorious Caravan. Glorious Caravan was made while I was at Chapman. And it was made with Chapman equipment and Chapman students, and but not with Chapman. Right. Like, <laughs> Chapman so adjacent. Kind of. Well, what happened was like, <laughs> we'd have these exercises. And um, so like we get all this equipment to go shoot these things that weren't even supposed to be shorts they're just supposed to be exercises well everyone usually or the you know people tried to make shorts out of them well i kind of started doing this this um movie where i was like i'm going to write these scenes that are all interconnected with characters and stuff and i'm going to shoot those and adapt them to whatever you know so like I mean, sometimes they got really specific and they're like, you know, I, I need a scene with three people having dialogue at once because I need you to show me that. But they're giving us 16 millimeter film and stuff. So I was like, I'm not going to waste this. Are you kidding? <laughs> so I just write a scene and then we go shoot it. And then towards the end of the project, I started shooting uh, my own scenes. Like, you know, someone would be finishing a film that, that uh, their thesis or something. And I'd be like oh, can I borrow that camera tonight for two hours? And we just go shoot the stuff that we needed to interconnect it. And then we spent like a year, maybe a year and a half editing it. And we added an, uh, this narrator that was always kind of in plan. So it's a, it's a first-person movie about the narrator. So the narrator is telling this series of vignettes that kind of are interconnected. Some characters are coming in back and forth. But then after a while, he starts to lose control of the characters. And, like, they start almost talking back to him and not doing what he wants them to do for the scenes. And so he decides, screw it, I'm going to become a documentary filmmaker. This is documenting now. And he starts to, you know, make these documents and interview people. And it turns very, you know, 400 blows or whatever with people talking <laughs> at you. And and then all of a sudden that falls through. And the documentary doesn't work because it's so fictionalized. And the characters start rebelling again. And there's this character named Nathan Swain that everyone's supposed to like, oh, you should talk to him. You should talk to him. So he starts trying to find, the narrator starts trying to find Nathan Swain. And... Um, yeah, it's, so it's it's a weird it's a weird goofy uh, movie that's it's um, yeah it's a lot of fun. We shot it on all kinds of different mediums, which was also a really exciting thing. Like I really wanted to work with different aspect ratios in the same film. <laughs> I wanted to work with you know like and um, I don't know. It was I was obsessed with the idea of interlace at the time. And what it meant and that you're watching like a digital version of anything. Like if you get your film scanned to edit it and then you print it from that, you don't print it directly from a negative, which no one does anymore. You are dealing with 
with lines where, you know, film, you have thousands of grain that is pushed onto something and then you photograph it. With digital, you're always dealing with lines of resolution. Right. Uh, even in Ch- HD. Chemical process versus an electronic process. Yeah. And so, so even when I had shot film, these are, these are crystals that are being read by lines. So the whole movie is about lines. And I was really interested in like this upcoming hipster culture. And like all my friends were turning into hipsters. And what the hell was that about? <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. Well, they all wear striped shirts. That's perfect. I'm making a, move about, a movie about lines. <laughs> and so it's, it's just a movie about like rules and regulations and putting yourself in lines and in, you know what is your path and where are you going you think you know it and you can't know it you know and um so yeah <laughs> so that's the movie uh it's it's a it's a lot of fun we've shown it a couple times there's some sound issues in the middle with some of the early scenes we shot and so i i'm not you know overtly uh proud of it but mm-hmm. i am really proud of the ideas and what i was exploring at the time and stuff like that well but you know i uh, Speaking from a podcast, it's had its, its its technical issues. I totally get it, but I think considering, I mean, that's very much taking these exercises, which are generally, again, we're, I think we're talking about the. There are people that go to school to get their degree and go work in a tanning salon or work in their father's real estate office, and then there are people who are going to use the tools that they are given and the opportunities to figure something out about whatever they want to do. Yeah. Uh, I think taking, you know, these things that are essentially designed as crummy little exercises and turning them into a feature is pretty, (laughs) is pretty, is a pretty bold thing to do. It was, it was a lot of fun. I got a lot of people involved, which was also really cool just to like, be like, Oh, are you doing this weekend? Oh, we should just go shoot the scene where you play a crazy gypsy. And then next weekend, (laughs) you know, there's also this like huge, like uh, passive objects in it, which I really, is still something I'm really interested in. Um, but essentially like these objects almost connect the film as much as like, there's a red suitcase and there's like, you know, a a scarf and a pair of shoes and things that like, um, where are, are all of a sudden show up in the next scene. And mm-hmm. it's like, first, I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to watch the movie and not be me, but I imagine <laughs> watching it and being like, at first you're like, oh, wait, did they just not have enough money to buy a new suitcase? Why does this character have the same suitcase as the guy before? You know? Yeah. And then you start like trying to place it and figure <laughs> it out. Is the idea. I, I like, having been on film sets like enough, I like the idea that that you are thinking about everything and you should be thinking about everything. So if you see it, even if it was an accident, as a viewer, I don't like to know too much about uh, about what the intentions were because I like to be able to be like, what are, I mean, to paraphrase Kubrick, like, what are the hidden allegories of the director? Like, that was his favorite thing mm-hmm. about watching a movie. It was trying to find what he thought was intentional, even if it wasn't. Speaking of which... Watch Eyes Wide Shut again. <laughs> again, I had another conversation about this um, with my roommate Alicia, and she was she's uh, script supervising right now, and they got in a conversation about there was another scene was brought to light where there's film equipment, and I guess there's just film equipment sitting in the background of one of these scenes. I mean, I know a lot of stuff like there's 
dollies in the in the shots and like you could see the camera in reflected windows but i don't know i can't imagine having script supervisors that measure the distance of tables and calculate all these like specific things you shoot for the longest shoot history impossible and you have these mistakes in it it doesn't make sense to me and i i really think it's intentional like i really think that it's a movie about movies and that it's this you know the idea of a dream versus reality and the idea that you are watching a movie and anyway it's great Sorry, both both things reflecting. No, 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 no. No, I, I'm just. It's it's funny that you should that bring that up because I just watched. Um, uh, this fellow did a, a critique of an analysis. of critiques wrong word of um, John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah, Have you, did you see that? I haven't seen that. Um, there's there's. Um, I mean, I've seen the movie, but well, <laughs> have you seen? John thing, Carpenter's the thing. Not in many years, but yes. Okay, so I don't have to be angry at you like I was with uh, Mad Max. Right. Okay. Um, Wait, what? But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but 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 uh, um, uh, he's talking about exactly that 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 the 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 amount of time that it took Carpenter to shoot the the thing was a lot longer than he took for a lot of his other movies. So there were there was time to. Um, to be more methodical and meticulous with what he did. And I don't know whether or not... Uh, the, the, what I watched was... was he, he was talking about whether or not Childs, um, played by Keith David, was a, a replicant, a, you know, a, a thing um, at the end of the movie, which Carpenter has said kind of dismissively, no, they're both people, and they, they, they freeze it. A spoiler alert, but um, uh, he had a really good... Analysis of why he thinks that Childs was a thing, and and a lot of the stuff was things that I hadn't seen that he did this analysis, like um, um, little things like sound cues, like someone dropping a set of keys on the ground that were mentioned in a scene before, and these little things that, and I thought, here's my experience with the thing. I saw it when I was in, in whenever it came out, eighty, eighty two, and. I saw it in the theater, saw it a bunch of times, loved it. It's one of my favorite movies. It took me like literally like 25 years to realize that the scene where Wilford Brimley's in in the, um, um, I can't remember his name now, the character's name, but when Wilford Brimley's in the little shack, there's a noose in the scene. Right, I think we've talked about this. We did talk about it, but but this is my experience with it, that it took me, like, one of my favorite movies that I've seen 50 times, 100 times, it took me 20 years to realize there's a noose in that scene. He's talking to the guy, and he's saying, everything's okay, I'm okay now, I want to come inside, you know? But it's like, you know, he was infected, he killed himself, whatever the implications of that is. It took me 20 (laughs) years to see that. And, and, And whether or not this film was as methodical as... You know, because it seems on the face of it a throwaway remake of a '50s science fiction movie. Yeah, you know, but it isn't. <laughs> That's amazing. I need a. Can you send that? To me? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. You sure. should post it on the thing. Everyone could read it. My favorite, uh, my favorite Carpenter anecdote is that uh, Escape from New York. Donald Pleasance plays the president of the United States. Yes. Oh, I know this one. And they asked him, why, why does, who are the producers, whoever, why, is, why does the president of the United States have a British accent? And he said, oh, well, Ronald Reagan and uh, Margaret Thatcher had an affair, and he's their love child. Right. Nice. <laughs> Not mentioned in the movie at all, but... Right, right, right. It's just... Well, it's, funny, it's funny because, because Escape, from, Escape from New York and, and The Thing are a couple... Like, I would say Alien, the original Alien, 
Blade Runner, Escape from New York, and The Thing are like probably the four movies that made me just think movies were awesome when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just watched the cut scenes from Escape from New York where the, the bank heist in the beginning. I haven't seen those. It's online. I think it might have been on the in the DVDs. But basically, there's like there's like a ten minute sequence of why Snake Plissken is going to prison. The thing in Cleveland, right? It's St. Louis, I think. I think it's Cleveland because in Escape from L.A., there's he meets up with Pam Greer's character, who is a transgendered person, um, a trans woman, and he's like, oh, I haven't seen you since Cleveland, but. Well, I think he did a bunch of stuff, but okay. why he gets caught? Snake Plissken really gets right. I, I, he does. I it. haven't seen LA, yeah. which is a little bit <laughs> of an not. embarrassment. Like, I, I really need to start seeing down and watching these, like, this span of movies that I'm missing from, like, 1990 <laughs> to, like, contemporary. But, but yeah. you know what? But, but, but Escape from LA is a real disappointment. It's ultimately a very big failure. It's yeah. just, you know, it's, I don't know what, you know, he, maybe he had a mortgage payment. I don't know. He needed like yeah. a season I, I, I was under the impression that it was just like, hey, here's my chance to make like a a big budget movie because it was fairly big budget, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he, he just threw. Well, there's like jet skis and stuff, right? Or is that a different surfing, surfing, surfing. And, and submarines and stuff? Yeah. Oh, cool. And there's a lot of. Good <laughs> but it's so. It. But it's. But you know what though? It's. I mean, maybe I'm missing something that it's just so over the top that it's on purposely stupidly over the top. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of really good movie. people in it. Well, you know, you can say the thing about it. That's the thing. Escape from New York. There's a heat. Lee Van Cleef is in it. I mean, yeah. you know, it's like. Oh, I forgot that. Oh, man. <laughs> you forgot? <laughs> I forgot. I mean, like, I, it doesn't come to Donald my mind Pleasance, when I Lee think Van of that Cleef, movie. Harry Dean Stanton, um, Adrian Barbeau. I mean, you know, it's yeah. just like uh, Isaac Hayes is in it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's um, so uh, there were a lot of good. There were a lot of good folks in. Escape from New York. Yeah. And it was a low budget movie. <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, that was, uh, yeah. The big size. <laughs> I have this way too much. Yeah, like, totally. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Man, I, we'll talk anyway. about, let's, let's talk about some more fun stuff <laughs> and then we'll talk about the things that it. That depress us. Because I did see we, a movie that I do want to talk about and we'll talk about it later because it's Smurfs? Awesome. No. Are we going to go back to the Smurfs or are we um, leaving that behind? I, I feel we're a little leaving the Smurfs I'm also wearing on your Smurfs behind. underwear. What? No, I'm lying. <laughs> We're leaving the Smurfs on your behind. Oh. <laughs> See what I did? There? That was no. Let's talk about more fun stuff. All right. What? I, well, are we ready to talk about Wild the Beast? Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about Wild the Beast. Um, and and be honest as you want to be in the conversation. Oh, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about though, really quick before we go off on Wild the Beast. Please. I, I want to spend some time on that. Uh, just in general, because I know you mentioned Alicia, and I know you two worked on, like I said, our one of our previous, two of our previous guests' stuff, MID, and um, uh, and I know you did sound for that movie, uh, for that web series. And uh, yeah, we were on, I think, uh, three or four of the shoot yeah, days. Yeah, and um, I just want to know just more, and then you, you work here and there, like basically because we cover on the show about like. How does one stay creative and survive in Los Angeles? Um, can you speak to that as far as most of your jobs involve editing for different companies and yeah. productions? And well, uh, I've kind of feared. I mean, like when I first started, I got out of school. It was a lot of like you know looking for PAs. I took a, a like an internship, I guess, at this company, um, and it was a paid internship. But it was like I don't know. I 
that was a good jump start because I got really see what a small production company looks like and what a festival looks like and all this, you know, kind of depressing stuff. Um, that, but it was like the things I was doing was like a lot of editing, a lot of graphic work, and I was like, crap, I could do this on my own and actually afford to eat. Mm-hmm. So, um, not well, but <laughs> but eat. Right, right, and right. So I don't know. I started off, yeah, doing some editing and just whatever I can. You know, I my my interest as a as a creative filmmaker is to know the like we were talking about before, know the technical side, know the craft as well as possible. Like those are the people that I I respect because those are the people that are going to be able to manipulate it. You know. Um, and so that's kind of what got me into sound. It was something where I was like, you know, I, I had studied it in school a little bit and I was excited by it, but it was something that I had veered off from for my, my like senior thesis kind of just took me away from that. And I was like, okay, get back into it. So recently I've been writing sound a lot and doing some, some editing. I don't do much post sound, um, but it, yeah, so it's, I don't know. It's it is a hard thing when you work so close to what you do mm-hmm. at times, mm-hmm. uh, especially when it comes to like editing. Because you know, if you're editing your own project or even just going over to meet an editor of your own video project, like or film project, if you've been staring at a computer for eight hours, you don't want to stare at a computer for another four. I mean, even no matter how much passion fills you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, um, I, so yeah, I don't know. Sometimes it gets difficult, but uh, I don't know. The, uh, a guy that's also in, in Well of the Beast, uh, Robert Pryor, who is a um, very well-known uh, in the theater world in, mm-hmm. in uh, Los Angeles, he, um, him and I were talking about this exact thing at coffee once, and he was saying that a friend of his had once told them that um, that you need to always work in something completely different from the artistic <laughs> medium. And we were both like, yeah, that makes sense, but we're not going to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think, unfortunately, in L.A., you know, the, a lot of the jobs that actually will pay you are in the entertainment industry. So unless yeah. you're like... I don't know. You're, you know, doing craft services, and you want to be a director. I don't. I can't imagine. You know. Yeah. It's. I mean, there are upsides. Like you could definitely watch for other people's mistakes and be like, or there are upsides. Like this person is really patient on the set and doesn't show that they're flustered. This person isn't flustered at all, and that's why it's running really slow. Or this, you know, whatever it is. Right. right. Um, so yeah, you can learn from everything. It's just having the stamina, I guess, is, is difficult at times, but yeah, necessary evil, I guess. Yeah. Um, that speaks very well to what's going on in my life just right now with trying to figure out what am I doing after this next production. I work in reality television, as, as the audience here of the podcast knows, and um, it's, it's, you know, reality television is fun to watch. Um, it's Baseball has been very, very good to me, but I, you know, it's not what I want to do. It's not what I want to create mm-hmm. as far as the creative end of it. So after a long day of uh, 
working on footage or, or whatever it is I'm doing for that day. Yeah, it's hard to then sit down in um, front of, even sometimes just to find time to edit this very podcast. Or, um, you know, I also write for a magazine and getting, sit down and do the research and, and writing and stuff. It's hard because you, sometimes I have, you know, 10, 10 12 hours. That's why you just make stuff up for the magazine, right? Right, 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 right. You just create things out of whole cloth. I do. I, do. I, I especially enjoyed Phil your Glass article. Style. Exactly. <laughs> I especially enjoyed your article about the Zeppelin pilots that are attacking Beverly Hills. <laughs> well, they're gay Zeppelin pilots. You leave that part out because it is an LGBT magazine. Oh, uh, that's true. So. Well... Well, you know, I just always thought the naval tradition always had a uh, had a you know an undercurrent of uh, you know of, of uh, both uh, understood yeah, yeah <laughs> an understanding uh, of of both you know of both transgender issues with the uh, you know yes. women dressing as men and and uh, you know the you rum sodomy and the lash to steal my actually my next article is about um, homosexuality in the military that's coming out in the September issue will be all about that right not no Zeppelin pilot so sorry wow. That would be a good John Carpenter movie, though. It would be. John, if you're listening, <laughs> we have ideas. Respects you up means. <laughs> Let's get together. We'll let you. We'll let you play as much uh, electronic keyboard music in the in the soundtrack as possible. I will see Escape from L.A. tonight. <laughs> I have to say that Escape from L.A. was not my most disappointing. I think we may have talked about this. The Highlander too was the was the the most. Delta between me liking the original. Is that the one with Van Peebles? No, that was when they actually. Uh, well, full disclosure, I refuse to acknowledge anything after the first movie because the second movie was so horrible. But if I were to, he was in the third, I believe, or the maybe right. the fourth. As, as James Adomi established on a previous podcast, the most attractive of the Van Peebles. <laughs> well, Melvin, you know, he's an older dude. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, but it was maybe when he was younger. I don't know. I don't know. Is there other? I think he was. I think he was good looking when he was younger. I think I've seen. Photos. We can go to the internet for this. I'm not. Gonna, <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to speculate. We'll look him up later. All right. Anyway, so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so um, let's talk about Well of the Beast. Uh, starting out with first. Um, Why'd you cast Brody, man? He can't do anything right. Because <laughs> I think I think when Brody came into casting, he had like ridden his bike or something and had a guitar. Maybe I'm, <laughs> a, I'm making this up in my mind. But I remember he was like, oh, I have to play this festival later or something, and um, I could give you lots of money, and I don't know. No, I have no idea why I cast him. <laughs> well, the Craigslist ad said, <laughs> looking for non-actors. Yeah. And I was like, that's me. <laughs> I'm a non-actor who's <laughs> somehow managed to end up in front of camera every once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know. It was it was a good time. Yeah. Um, so so uh, how how long uh, from start to finish? How long was the production for this? Just out of curiosity. The shoot production or just how long you had it in your head and how long I mean had it in my head for about probably a year. Really started working on it about two months before we shot shot for five days because <laughs> I knew yeah I was going to say the, 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 it was, the shoot it was, was ridiculous was uh, hot yeah it was like out of the oven uh, the um, the post then is still continuing <laughs> well, everything, everything is post production yeah right? it's it's um, it's 
it's definitely been a, a project where in the post I, I go back and forth between being like, oh yeah, it's so close to being like, oh my word, I'm not even near what I want to explore. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's yeah. So over well over a year ago, started in on it. Now the as the credits uh, say, um, adapted from the works of uh, can, can you speak Anton a, Stephen Fowl? Yeah, can you speak a little bit about that? Um, Anton and I met uh, sophomore year of my high school at that Tacoma School of the Arts, and he um, disappeared, and I totally forgot about him and I got a package that was like hey Emmett this is my unpublished manuscript that I'm sending around but I want to give you the rights if you want to make it and there was like a cute little VHS tape in there and I was like you know I think it said like do you still shoot on mini DV or will this work <laughs> I was like so so I thought okay I'll start adapting it it was amazing how similar his interests and references were to what I was reading at the time so and yeah there's a lot of even um, as I was preparing um, because I did my preparation as an actor (laughs) did you as a non-actor yeah your method your your non-preparation as a (laughs) non-actor so there was okay here's here's what interests me about the execution of this concept Mm -hmm. um, based on this adaptation there is the one level of the literary influences mm-hmm. um, that and and cinematic. I'm, I'm going to lump them together as far as cinematic and literary influences, as far as certain things you wanted to hit in in the, the turning this into a narrative. Let's call it literary. Okay. <laughs> oh, Ooh, let's man, not. That let's not. not. <laughs> I think we all three were like. Uh. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then also, so and, and so that would include um, certain poets, certain authors, mm-hmm. and, and that's you know I, I did my reading for that, and I did my my viewing as far as um, cinematic influences. But there is also, and this is what I'm really interested in talking about, uh, the execution of the concept of how you were going to shoot this. This is not on film. No, this is on uh, VHS, VHS-C mostly, toy cameras, uh, Tyco cameras. um, Just, we wanted to make, you know, I mean, kind of lo-fi movie. So, um, yeah, just... There's this whole like kind of weird uh, underlying theme that I'm I'm still trying to pull out a little bit stronger. That's you know kind of these uh, not quite artificiality, but almost like somewhere between that and and the toy world, where it's mm-hmm. like objects are objects, but they're also representative of objects yeah. like uh, hard to explain but no, it's I, like I know exactly what you're talking about it's yeah it's so so like this I, is I a have camera. a child I have a child so I, I go finish your thought because I have a thought about that yeah <laughs> this is this is a, a camera but this isn't a camera like you don't go out and make movies with it like <laughs> like um, so there's lots of like I don't know models and and cheesy special effects you know kind of wanted to um yeah make a make a 
monster movie in some ways. Yeah. Well, see, here's the thing is, is talking about exactly that. Cause I, uh, um, my daughter had surgery on her hand. So we talked about the doctor and things like that and trying to get her familiar and not be, as, you know, be as, as frightened as little as possible about the process. So now she's like really into like doctoring things and, you know, she wants to put bandages on people and take vitamins and stuff like that. So I've been looking at doctor's kits and it struck me that when I was little, I had a doctor's kit that had a little Gladstone bag and the stethoscope. Mm-hmm. It didn't really work. It was just a plastic stethoscope, but it looked like a doctor's kit. And the stuff inside it looked fairly, you know, maybe in brighter colors or plastics. But it, it was definitely, you set it down next to a doctor's Gladstone bag, even though it was red plastic and you pulled out the stethoscope, it looked a heck of a lot like the stuff that was in the doctor's bag. Looking now at all the toys, they're very much Muppety versions of, of you know, the stethoscope is bright yellow with big old earplugs and a big old, you know, um, whatever the drum of the stethoscope is, you know, and bright blue. And it's all very cartoony and Muppety. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't like that at all. I mean, it, it's I, I think that toy aspect of that seems to be a recent phenomena I the stuff that I the cap guns that I grew up with looked like pistols. You yeah. were never in doubt that you were playing with pistols. And now the most realistic ones have to have bright orange things so you don't get shot by the cops or whatever. And it's just very odd to me that we've gone from children play with realistic versions of the world to no children have to have these like retarded in the sense of Kept artificially in young. The yes, in the non pejorative. Yes, in the non pejorative, you know, it kept artificially cartoony and young. You know, it's like I almost want to go out and buy her a stethoscope, go to a medical supply yeah. store and buy her a stethoscope so that she's using a stethoscope. One down the street. I know. <laughs> I know. But it's odd that you should mention that, that these, you know, like I had like a little sound machine that could just make noises, different noises, you know, and that's what it did. It wasn't like a, a fake camera that. You could take pictures, but they're going to be shitty. <laughs> or I had yeah. cameras, an no, actual film camera. That's cameras. the thing. It's like, it, like the other thing is like these toy cameras actually did record. Right. And I don't like Tyco doesn't make toy cameras anymore right. that record. Right. Um, they just show the picture on the back of the LCD or whatever. Or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, and yeah. Um, I used to get toy cameras in like Pioneer Chicken meals. Like mm-hmm. they would have a, a, a cheap plastic you know, film camera that you would put film in and you could take actual snapshots with, you know, like a real camera. Yeah. Yeah. That hipsters use now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like these cheesy fixed lens. Featured in Emmett Casey's glorious character. <laughs> <laughs> right. But yeah, you know, I, I think it's really interesting that we've gone from, you know, toys reflecting an adult existence to this. It has to be about kids can't possibly, you know, grasp the subtleties of a real okay. stethoscope. So was the the aesthetic, was it, hey, this is something I've been wanting to do for a long time, let's try it with this project, or what, like, which, which informed what? The aesthetic, did the aesthetic inform how you were going to tell the story, or did the story, it was like, this is, I think, you know. I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's like a, I don't know. Or is it just a marriage of two ideas? Yeah, but it, like it was definitely like, you know. I'll do them together. It wasn't like, 
you know, the marriage didn't start with me, like someone catching the other while they fell off a building or something. Right, like, That's right. not how the couple met. <laughs> uh, it was definitely like, hey, how do we meet? Oh, well, were we introduced by this person? No, 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 no. We were, you know. <laughs> so somewhere along the line, it was yeah. just uh, a merging of the two. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it might have had something to do with, I got, I got, uh, one of the Tyco cameras uh, from a friend mm-hmm. and he was just like here's this and we went and saw um, I guess there's a, a film festival that tours and stuff with uh, movies that are shot on that and we saw that Okay, and so that might have had something to do with the yeah. original like oh I should this looks really cool like dreamy and bizarre and mm-hmm. um, yeah cool I can dig that because like songs I've done like I don't remember if I did the tune first or the lyrics first or together it was kind yeah. of like that. And um, that's the music analogy. I'm going to shoehorn in here. Nice. Excellent. Good work. Thank you. Okay, so you have, <laughs> you have uh, your story now. You have the aesthetic that you're going for and the equipment you're going to use to achieve that. You have uh, your crew, um, people you've worked with before. And non-actors like Brady. And, and some actors. And some, but, but yeah. I you, like, I like you cast merging the two. Like, that's the, that's the best part is like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and I, it's not like I was a complete stranger to the, the screen. I was I was gnarly patron, gnarly tooth patron in the Weathered Underground. That's right. I forgot about that. Do you want me to reenact my, my line? Please. Please. Fuck you, cop. You drop it. Thank you. Very much. Did you give it that reading, too? I gave it a couple different readings. And the one they went with was, fuck you, cop. You drop it. And then I get shot. I would have been like as as you should if you're pointing a how, gun at a cop. How was your death scene? So it was it was good. I, I just slumped like, over, uh, got gut shot, slumped over. Oh, that's not good. No, it wasn't as. You good need as, like you need like uh, what's that play? The Fantastics. Isn't that where he <laughs> dies for like ten minutes or something in the middle? Anyway. Well, isn't uh, doesn't Pee Wee Herman have uh, Paul Rubens have that death scene in Buffy, Buffy the, the Vampire, Vampire Slayer that goes yes. on for like fifteen yes. minutes? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and into the credits. Yeah. Yeah. I would have gone with fuck you, cop. You drop it. <laughs> like a like a, a Google voice uh, yeah. email. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> No, that would be more like forks. <laughs> you corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't be. Would it would be wrong? Is what it would be. <laughs> now, the, here's the funny thing as far as the uh, the premise behind the story. Um, it was something where people who were working on the set for like a day would come up to me and ask, well, "So, what's this thing about?" And like, I developed this tagline for what the movie was about that by the end of the shoot I remember like people going to you and you're like Brody come here you sum it up <laughs> there's a certain thing. So, and I've summed it up on the show um, instead of revisiting that I would like to hear you say what well did he say? oh no <laughs> but you say it so well uh, <laughs> well let's do yours and then we'll do Brody's and see how they compare okay uh, I'll have to judge here oh. <laughs> Judge, jury, it's and executioner. About, um, What's this thing about, man? So, like, uh, yeah, there's these three um, radical poets, and before the movie, during a drunken night, um, one of them suggests that the only true poet was the blind poet, 
And so the next morning, kind of out of uh, whatever, they you know say, okay, if that's true, we're going to cut out your eyes. And he's like, fine. So they cut out his eyes, take him down to some unnamed South American town to get cheap eye surgery replacement. But his eyes may have been swapped with Satan's eyes. Um, and it just kind of spirals out there into a mad romp through a very weird situation. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. Lots of body casts and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Brody. What's your sex? What's your tagline? I, it's mine is pretty much um, three radical American poets go to South America to start a revolution and a war against um, society in the name of poetry, but. Once in South America, a hidden agenda, you know, becomes, uh, what I, you know, a hidden no, agenda reveals itself. That, see, that doesn't give away as much as mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you start the film with, and again, this is um, from the writings of Anton, who uh, Anton himself is um, a, a figure in the movie as played by Adam Brooks. Yeah. Of, of Millennium Bug, which is making its way around the festivals right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Adam's a really cool guy. I hope, to, I hope to have him on to talk about Millennium Bug and about his experience on Well of the Beast. Um, how'd you find him? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, this is like when I graduated all over again. <laughs> we'll say there was a casting process. There was a casting Adam. process. Let's just say that. Let's I'm pretty say. sure that was it. I think it was just like, yeah. we, you know, somehow... Uh, yeah, we got him into the casting, yeah, and yeah. you know, yeah, he's he was wonderful and wonderful to work with, and and just a blast. I think he did a great job. I hope to work with him again in the future. Yeah, how would you Something. describe? And I'm, I'm guessing um, Anton, as portrayed in the movie, is um, like Anton the writer. Um, and I and I know I know specifically some of the inspiration you gave Adam for his portrayal. Uh, like one of the things we watched was uh, Made in Britain by... Kind of, yeah. As far as I a mean, certain way of carrying himself. Yeah, he's, and he's, it was also based, like, I, I mean, like, I didn't... A Tim... The writer um, dude, like, I didn't... hadn't seen him in so long. Right. I just had to just make this shit up. And I, I just, uh, uh, I don't know. I, I Kind of, yeah kind of made in britain but not really at all like made in britain is is a hardcore realism like yeah, yeah, yeah. here is you know a young skinhead yeah um pissed off at the world that's a, and, and anton uh, it's a young poet pissed off at the world yeah, yeah. but he's also a little bit cool yeah like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's very laid back as far as um it, 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 you know in, in adam's portrayal of of him Whereas, well, we should say the the group. It's a group of three poets. Um, I play Bo, and we'll talk about that. Um, but also, uh, we have Elliot Ellers mm-hmm. as um, as Felix, mm-hmm. uh, and he and he's more of the cocky one of the group, I think. Yeah, yeah. And and, <laughs> and and just what can we say about Elliot? He he's done he's done a lot of work. Um, yeah, Elliot's done a lot of work, and and he's. Uh... He's a fun dude. Um, what was the movie he really... was in about the shooting, the school shooting? Because oh, yeah. mine and Megan's friend Dana is also in that movie, uh, Broke Ass Bride. If 
any of you are in the wedding blogosphere. Dame As I'm that. sure you all are. Yes. Dame is in that movie and worked with Elliot at one point. But yeah. I just know he was a school shooter and something. I just, I'm fixated on the fact of what if instead of watching Made in Britain... He'd watch Made in Manhattan and did the portrayal <laughs> as Jennifer Lopez. Oh my word! I need to remake this movie. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. It's gonna I'm be sorry. like. Oh, <laughs> well, that's totally, really good. Totally different. <laughs> wow. But maybe not so different, hmm? Because she's still Jenny from the block. Yep. Don't matter about the rocks that she's got. <laughs> that's right. Is that right? That <laughs> Probably. Is. Let's say um, it is. I just remember that pink jumpsuit or whatever she had with the booty shorts. <laughs> well, who doesn't? Yeah. So you have, you have Felix, who's the cocky one of the group, and then Anton, who's um, a sh- self-assured, but not cocky. I mean, yeah, he's and he's kind of like the uh, wonder child, golden boy. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, yeah, he's done well in the literary scene, and uh, uh, I don't know. Yeah, and then you have Bo. Yeah. So what do you want to say about Bo? Because <laughs> I I'm not going to speak about him because I I'm biased because I have in as a actor, <laughs> you know like I, I you know you also gave us a lot of backstory and we we did some exercises before shooting as far as improvising and kind of becoming comfortable uh-huh. as the characters and interacting with each other as those characters. Um, so I have my idea of him but what's your idea of him Bo is a good guy <laughs> uh, I don't know Bo is like um, he's one of these dudes that's just always going to be there for his friends and uh, always going to simultaneously be able to output great work and and um, has been able to since he was young, you know. Um, I don't know. He's kind of like a Allen Ginsberg type character, you know, like just really supportive of everything. Yeah. But then when you read his work, it's not necessarily hindered by that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. I don't know if that explains much. I, I, I think it does. I, I think really it does. Like, I think yeah. Allen Ginsberg. Yeah. Um, you know, he's not going to go axe murder somebody and yeah but well, he's also going to like you know he could have sex with very young boys or something like <laughs> no, that sure sure you know sure, uh, sure. well I, well yeah, exactly I mean like there's like this kind of side personality of radicalism that right. uh but it's always safe in some ways it's like that like you know you're out drinking with your buddies and you're going to jump off shit and scrape your knees and beat up someone but it's like never malicious right you know uh, there's nothing really malicious or never the raison d'etre I think because yeah. a lot of a lot of that if you're using the beat bit of poet analogy a lot of that is you know that kind of conflict is sort of at the core of their beings yeah yeah I mean, I think, I think it's fair to say, because I, I want to talk about the film uh, with you without spoiling it for the audience, but um, I think it's fair to say that Anton Felix and Bo uh, have an idea of themselves and an idea of being radical poets and, and these guerrillas uh, um, to some extent with what they're going to accomplish, but they're in over their head, for sure. Yeah. I mean... How many yeah. revolutionaries? How many revolutionaries actually go into it and are not in over their head? <laughs> at least in the beginning, 
I think I think <laughs> there I are mean, very few revolutions that are, that are worthy of the name where people go in with the tanks at their back already, you know. <laughs> and that's that's why people cling to them so Absolutely. much. That's why it's the best. Is like yeah. these people are always the underdog. Yeah. It's yeah. like this, you know, it's the it's the fool walking through a battle or something. His the only one to survive. William you know? Walker, that Alex Cox, the Walker, that scene. Oh, Walker. it's so. It's one of my wonderful. favorite movies ever, 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 ever. Same thing, exactly. Because he's so oblivious. He's so oblivious to everything going on around him, except for exactly what he's trying to accomplish. Right. And people are dying all around him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Alex Cox makes me so uncomfortable so? in a great. Oh, way. in a good way. Oh, I like I, it's just a filmmaking that's not. It doesn't follow a tradition at all. There's like something very like with his camera placement and his storytelling. Like there's you can feel that he knows the tradition. Yes, that he's like interested in. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. like when he goes to make uh, what's what's it, straight to hell or yeah right the, the western. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like okay, he's going to make a spaghetti western, right? Because he loves spaghetti westerns. It's nothing like a spaghetti western. <laughs> yeah, it is, but yeah, yet it, it very is. much is. Yeah, and it yeah, makes yeah, yeah. me so uncomfortable in this good way that I. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is, see, I that's I I uh, he's he's probably with Kubrick. He's one of my favorite directors. The um, uh, yeah, I, but I'm sure is, he would like cream his pants right now. If you told him that. <laughs> but but. Uh, um, uh, but it is very it's simultaneously you know what it is it's, it's it, I'll use the food analogy it's like the molecular gastronomy thing it's like when somebody makes like a you know a hot chocolate pumpkin pie thing that's in a that's in a you know a gelatin shell yeah. that tastes exactly like a hot chocolate and a pumpkin pie it's not the right format. It doesn't make sense, but it tastes exactly. But all all of this stuff, because I, I think a lot of this stuff is very straightforward, but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not because I mean, yeah, uh, um, Highway Patrolman, very straightforward movie, but it's not. Uh, Straight to Hell, very straightforward, but it's not. <laughs> I don't know how he gets to that point though. That's I think what yeah. makes me like technically. I'm like, how does this guy? envision that because he does it consistently and it's you know what I, 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 I the only thing I can think of and this is complete speculation on my part it's it's again the technical knowledge it's the technical knowledge of knowing how something's supposed to be the whole you need to know the rules before you can break them so you can get to a place where you don't care about whatever rule it is as long as you have the baseline to be able to follow the rules if you wanted to you know it's Picasso being a great artist in a traditional sense, before he could do crazy shit. Yeah, you know, it's it's. I think that's got to be a component of it. For sure. I, I think there are people that just don't care, and they make great work. But I think there are also people who really deeply care, and then they cannot care and make great work. Yeah. You know, I, I think Alex Cox is one of those guys that really gives a shit about a good movie, about a well-made movie, right. and then can. Build what do you guys on. think oh, about? I've only seen the trailer about Rebo Chick. I'm really interested. Okay. Like, the aesthetic makes me do exactly that. Roll my eyes and go, oh, what is he doing? But simultaneously, I'm like, what the hell is he doing? Like, there's some part of me that's, that wants to be open and be 12 years old to this and be right. like, yeah, okay, don't close yourself off. This might be a really interesting thing. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing to say because I saw, I mean, Repo Man is my first Alex Cox movie that I saw. And I liked it for 
teenage reasons. Mm-hmm. And then Walker was the first Alex Cox movie that, that I saw that I, I liked for more adult reasons. And I thought that with a lot of his choices that he made... First off, it totally opened my eyes to an entire part of history, being a history fan, that I had no idea about. We're talking about revolutions and the filibusters yeah. and people just saying, you know what? Going to get 50 guys with a bunch of guns, going to go take over someplace. Yeah. We're just going to go do it. And people did that. They just did that. You know, it's like, for whatever reason they wanted, uh, we want another slave state. Let's go take over Cuba. Mm-hmm. And they would just sail off and do whatever the hell they wanted. Right. But, but you know, I, I that was the first... It, 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 that was the first movie that kind of opened my eyes to a lot of different things and not just, well, this is a modern take on our politics in Central America. Yeah. But it's also a reflection of the last 150 years of politics in South America and Central America. You know? But what did you think when you saw the Repo Chick trailer? I haven't seen it yet. Okay. I didn't oh. know this is, I, I need to see it. Yes. Okay. We'll show it to you later. Okay. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but Cox yeah. is doing it, right? Yeah. It's okay. done. Isn't it? it? It's done, and I'm pretty sure it's shown um, around at a couple places. Not not like showing in major theaters, but it's but like festivals, festivals and stuff. stuff. See, I, but it's in the can. The first movie I made. I'm pretty sure. Okay. The first movie I made was a lot like what this is, where it's all green screen. Yeah. And well, yeah. I the, mean, the, the one, it this, is. this one I was in called The Weathered Underground. It was, I mean, at least the parts I was in, and as far as I can tell from when I I watched it. It was all shot on green screen, so the environments were completely computer generated, and that seems to be the case for this. No, I, I know that's the case, but it's not just that. It's okay. not like okay. I mean, like from the trailer that I saw, it wasn't just like here's computer backgrounds. It was like here's computer backgrounds meets like Tank Girl painted extra pink or something. Right, like that. right, right. It was right. like. So weird. Like yeah. I, I don't know how I feel about it. It feels like yeah. something that my I don't know, like a twelve year old cousin or something would barf out. You know, right, it's right, like right. I just don't understand what this Yeah. Says it's out on D V D. Is it really? I'm totally fine right story, now. Like, this was always his idea for the rest of Otto's story for Repo Man, like Repo Man Two, but well, have you obviously read, can't do it with the read this? So now it's a repo chick instead, but the same story. Have you read the script for Waldo's Hawaiian Holiday? No. Which was supposedly the sequel. I heard uh, that this I, I have read that. Yeah. I I hear though that this isn't a sequel. It is not a non sequel. According to the okay. Wikipedia that I'm looking at currently. Yeah. Okay. It's a non sequel. It's a non sequel. I don't care. I, this is the thing. Is I don't I, care. I'll I have, go see it. <laughs> I'll go see it. I'll go see it. I, I'll own it. I mean, yeah. he, he... Sure. Pretty much... I think Straight to Hell is the, actually the only thing I don't have on DVD. It's worth it. I have like three copies of Walker. I have like a VHS copy of Walker. And I have the yeah. DVD and I have the collector's edition of the DVD. I started buying VHS just for their covers, like mm-hmm. certain ones, mm-hmm. like if I find them. Because sometimes, uh, like some of the covers, like the one I got um, under the volcano the other day, and that cover is so gorgeous. Like the Criterion ones, nah. But <laughs> the the like the VHS cover is just like this gorgeous that kind of like I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> twelve <Black> VHSs. <laughs> so these characters, uh, these three guys, uh, run into um, a character played by Nellie Barnett. Yes. What do you want to say about uh, this character, Nellie of Nellie's? Um. Oh man. I don't know. It's it's a funny character. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, the first time we see her, 
And the only time, I mean, all through the movie, she is in a cast, like all over her face, all over both of her arms, on her legs. She's walking with two canes. And so you could really only see like her eyeballs and her mouth Mm -hmm. and like some of her tops of her arms and stuff like that. And um, so it's just as, I don't know, she's, she's a... and she plays it so well, like, even though you can only see, like, these glimpses of her, mm-hmm. um, it, like, her personality comes through, and, yeah. like, there's, there's this great, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she, so, they all, they all go back to, like, this uh, hotel room that they've gotten in this town, and, um, yeah, that's kind of, I guess, where the movie kind of picks up and things start to get interesting. Yes, and stuff. yes. And, and one of the things that happens eventually leads... Um, uh, these characters to uh, Robert Pryor's character, who you mentioned earlier, um, or you mentioned Robert earlier, mm-hmm. uh, but his character, uh, Pipe Smoking Man, is kind of how he was referred to on set. Yeah, he's kind of the the unnamed. Uh, he's uh, the unnamed character, mm-hmm. you know, just that. The man with no name. Yeah, <laughs> except. <laughs> Uh, more of the mysterious stranger, if you know your uh, Mark Twain references. Sure. Uh, <laughs> he, um, yeah, he shows up and uh, he's kind of, you know, there's this great thing in like, um, there's this great thing in my own nostalgia for novels that I don't know if it, I can point to an example, but where novels will go on and then all of a sudden halfway through they introduce this new character and it just like cuts in the middle. And, like, the whole novel shifts. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it was a very, like, uh, I don't know, like, 18th century, like, romantic novel type Well, let's instrument. go back. <laughs> let's, go, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the whole Strider versus Aragorn thing. There you go. But suddenly he's not just some badass ranger dude. He's, like... This is, like, more like, though, that the plot oh, all this of a sudden like, is, like, you end up at, like, you know, this giant estate. Here's your uncle. Sudden, you know? Here's your uncle, uh, and now everything is different. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like... Yeah, you're right. That is Andre a very... Gid, or Gid, or however you say his last name, kind of did that a lot. Like, just all of a sudden, here we go. And, right, right. Um, <laughs> But yeah, he's definitely that kind of like, <laughs> and the movie breaks, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, um, it's almost, and I like movies that do that, like, where it's like, this is not the same movie I started off with almost, you know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah. The most mainstream version of that that I can think of is from Dust to Dawn. Kind of. I, I would say like uh, Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Better example. Full There's Metal a... Jacket is like. That's a great example. This is two movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I like that. Yeah. And in the, the way that this, and I'm, I'm being purposefully um, ambiguous. Full Metal Jacket? It's a Buildings Roman. It is. There you go. For those of you playing the Buildings Roman drinking game, Gene's mentioned it now, and I've said the word now, so take a shot. Um, <laughs> the, the way the, the movie unfolds, it, it's part... Horror, part spaghetti western, part... Horrible spaghetti dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I call it that. There's nothing worse than a bad spaghetti dinner. Mm. It's hard, I could think. I could think of nothing worse. Because mm. I'm not trying at all. <laughs> Is that... Well, how would you characterize it, though? I mean, it's also... 
I don't know. It, it's very interesting, and and like I said, it's there's all these poetic influences. Yeah. Um, and also li- little cinematic illusions. Yeah, little winks mm-hmm. and nods and stuff. Um, yeah, I think you did summed it up perfectly. I mean, there's <laughs> there's definitely like I said, this like kind of um, monster movie element, like uh, kind of like a, a Kuchar feel to some of it. Um, and like a, I don't know. Yeah. So there's this, this weird blend of like literature, classic cinema. And like, surrealism. Yeah. Surrealism. Everything. Just throw it in a blender and yeah. trappe. You it's know? kind it's of, like, sl- <laughs> it's literary. <laughs> <laughs> that, no. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. so. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you have to see the film, uh, we urge you. We, we have a screening you. of it on uh, September 30th at Echo Park Film Center at, um, I believe, 8 o'clock. And um, the website, wellofthebeast.com, will be up. Uh, it should be up the end of this week. So Very take cool. a look at that, and we'll have information about the screening. Then we'll hopefully do some other screenings around town and stuff like that. So tell your friends and come out, and it'll probably yeah, be like we'll have to do that. five bucks or something Yeah. To do. Weren't involved. In we'll, we'll definitely continue to plug the screening. It should be five bucks if you were involved in the film. Frankly, it's five dollars. It's actually going to be twenty-five for Brody, but, uh, <laughs> as befits his non-acting status. <laughs> and we'll continue to plug the um, screenings and events on ShakyTownRadio.com. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the actual experience of making it? As far as I mean, it was shot in a couple different places around LA and um, all around Los Angeles. Um, with a small, small crew, a small, small cast. It was kind of just made as a, in like this, in, in like a fever dream, I guess. <laughs> uh, it was kind of just, you know, there was one day we were shooting in this, uh, you know, hotel room, uh, and it, you know, there's lots of smoke, mm-hmm. and we were just stuck in there, you know, for hours, just like, <laughs> smoking and fog machines going and it's a tiny tiny room and normally stuff gets like that on a film set but this was like lock the doors we're in here to shoot this scene guys you know i think everyone kind of lost their mind i had a miniature freak out that day oh yeah it was pretty good yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) there's a there's a very violent scene that happens and and uh it overcame me for whatever reason you i i was like what's wrong with me and you're like We've been working a long time. I know why, and I can't. I know why, and I can't. And I can't say on the radio. Uh, (laughs) But it's PTSD. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, because of of, of the incident we talked about, which I'm not going to. Yes, exactly. Uh, I've been the victim of many assaults. We'll just put it that way. Um, Both here and in Phoenix. Um, Yeah. So, but so you know, I you were very good to me though. I appreciated that, Um, and we got through it. And I think I smoked a cigarette and got back. Got back I on know. that horse. You got in trouble, right, for smoking too many cigarettes? <laughs> I did pick up my smoking habit again during that shoot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Get you on the sin wagon. <laughs> Death sticks. <laughs> um, it's important that you live that poet lifestyle on the ragged edge. <laughs> Life and death means nothing to poets. <laughs> no, you think poets are going to care about warnings It means everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. They just pretend it means nothing. <laughs> that's, that's true. Well, well, reporting on uh, <laughs> reporting on life and death means everything. 
but the 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 minutia of whether or not uh, a cigarette is going to take five minutes off your life is not important <laughs> unless of course that's what your poetry explores it's it's a silly movie like it's definitely not doesn't take the poets too seriously even though it does you know yeah i mean um, I just, you know what, and I think it's at the heart. Maybe this is one of the reasons I appreciate Alex Cox a lot. Is again, he does serious subjects, and he doesn't ever take them seriously, um, even when he ends up making serious movies with serious messages. Is I always get that feeling that he that he um, is okay with treating things lightly, even though the end result is can be dark or heavy. You know? Yeah. I think maybe that's why I appreciate it because that's kind of how I feel. I think people make way too big a deal over way too many things, and unless someone is like actively charging you at you with a machete going to kill you, generally speaking, life is pretty good. You know, you you, you don't have to worry or invest that much angst in stuff. And if someone's charging at you with a machete, life must have been pretty good right before that. To, uh... <laughs> Unless it's just some sort of random, random machete attack. Uh, well, even then, you know, you must you be might like, holy crap, you know, if I survive this, I survived a machete attack. But see, afterwards, afterwards, yeah, if you're like, dude, I get totally almost got hacked to death with a machete. Yeah. Let's, act, let's ask all those sub-Saharan African folks who almost got hacked oh, to death yeah. with machetes. Oh, goodness. Oh, uh, sorry to bring it down, guys. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Hey everybody, this is Gene. Uh, we've set up a donation station at shakytownradio.com slash donate for you to donate money to us if you like our show. Um, you can also click the donate button on the Shakytown Radio. It's really easy to do via PayPal. Um, we'd like to thank everyone who's donated in the past and look forward to bringing you more Shakytown Radio in the future. It was a good set. Everybody got along. Um, great craft services, vegan options. I was very happy. And um, I heard there was one pussy on the show who had a really big breakdown. Yeah, <laughs> talk about that a little. Yeah, it uh, it embarrassed everyone. <laughs> Is it going to be in the outtakes like in the end of a Burt Reynolds movie? <laughs> Fuck you both. Ah, <laughs> uh, Jesus. Um, and yeah, great, great, great cast, and yeah, just everybody go see it. It's really fun. Um, we've I, we've done a couple uh, like preview screenings and uh, and stuff and I thought the reaction was pretty good I mean it's yeah. it's a hard it's definitely an art film and like there's maybe a couple minutes where you're kind of like am I am I allowed to laugh at this and like, you know <laughs> but um, I thought the reactions were pretty good yeah. overall uh, people seem to enjoy it yeah and you have a new edit uh, for for what's coming up well we're working on it yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's not set yet. We ideally we're going to have a new edit. If not, we'll have the old one cleaned up a little. Okay. Bit. So okay. one or the other. Ideally, I'll have a, a new edit. Um, so I'm excited about some some tweaks and changes and stuff. Very cool. Pull out this and push out that. And... Very cool. So what are you working on that's new? What's going on? Um, I've got a new film that I'm doing called Mirror and Missile, which is. Um, it's going to begin production here in a couple weeks, and um, yeah, it's it's a really fun kind of magical realism type story. Um, this will be your third feature. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, it takes place. There's two parts to it, um, and so the first part's kind of this. Uh, takes place in a fictionalized version of Echo Park. So it's called Echo Park, but it's not really Echo Park. Would you say it's an Echo 
Of Echo Park? Hmm. Uh, multiple echoes. <laughs> this is the Grand Canyon Echo. Uh, the, uh, yeah, it's kind of like a, um, like we want to feel like, uh, you know, like backlot movies from the 40s, like specifically musicals, you'll see like one scene ends and the camera just pans across the street. Yeah. Mm, and right. the new scene starts. And we kind of want to like shoot it like that so it feels like everyone's neighbors and the, the, like Echo Park is more of a town and it feels like <coughs> excuse me um, like four blocks or something like that and um, we want to like stylistically kind of you know high aesthetic uh, black and white sepia tone with texture is kind of the visuals um, the story is about this young guy Abe wanders into town and this kind of evil dance choreographer who's trying to choreograph this dance that she's performing in two nights that's going to transfer all the power from the moon to her. Um, she has the moon trapped in a closet. <laughs> and like, uh, so she sees the young boy wander in and, and falls in love with him, head over heels, like, you know, sees him from afar, love at first sight. But our narrator, who lives across the street, also sees him and falls in love with him. So the two kind of try to stop each other and stop certain people in town from meeting him who he might fall in love with. And in the process, of course, he meets all the girls involved with the dance and all the girls in town and falls in love with all of them. And, and you know, chaos ensues. And there's all these, like, subplots. The first part's definitely very... Uh, I want it to be like a... Like, trying to explain a Shakespeare plot where you're like, oh, oh, wait, but I forgot that this subplot was also happening and it comes in here and it interconnects there and so like the, uh, you know so like if you explain it you're like wait a minute why did this happen you have to backtrack like 10 you know <laughs> but um <laughs> so that's the first part and then the second part um is it's like slow walking through the california desert like the, the main character becomes a hunter and, <laughs> and like does this have to do with the fact that the moon being trapped in someone's closet has caused some sort of global calamity that <laughs> results in an apocalypse that would be cool but uh, <laughs> no more to the fact that he gets thrown in a boat passed out and <laughs> floats into the middle ride. of a desert <laughs> got it got it perfect uh, but but yeah it's it's really exciting uh, and our audience can actually support the uh this venture on Kickstarter. Yeah, we have, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to do it is we have so many people that are working in the industry and are like, okay, let's do our own project. We have all this equipment and stuff, uh, but we still need some support and some help. So we're trying to raise $5,000 on Kickstarter. That's nothing. I, I agree. And it's just really for food to feed the cast sure. and crew and couple specialty things yeah um, and we've got a nice start but we really really need support and stuff yeah so, so again shakytownradio.com we're gonna have a we have a link to the kickstarter uh, which is going to uh, September September uh, I believe on the 11th it ends the midnight on the 11th okay so um, please yeah if you can support local independent filmmaking which doesn't happen in Los Angeles that much yeah or maybe it happens a lot. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it may happen a lot shittily. Yeah, this is, uh, is going to be real high quality. Classic <laughs> stuff. <laughs> we need to put that Kickstarter thing at the beginning of the show. Yeah. Let's do that. Okay.
Make sure. We will. Win that. Yeah. Okay. I'm on it. Good. I did it. Do it. It's done. Damn. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, anything? Yeah, anything we, else you need to plug or want to we, talk about? We have some questions from the audience. Oh, we do have yeah. some questions for the audience if you want to Wait, They're not hearing them live, are they? Live. No. <laughs> they're not hearing this live. No, no. That's why I just asked for general questions and not necessarily anything we're talking about. Because that would be This Way Lies Madness. Um, uh, Daryl Duffy, d on Twitter, uh, asks, What's it like? What is it like, Emmett? It's like a hiccup. Brody, what's it like? It's like a antique sword uh, inherited from a distant relative okay. shoved right through you. Okay. Um, my answer, what's it like? It's like a hearty stew. And uh, from the friend of the show, uh, J.P. Spaulding. Of the J.P. Oddcast. Of the J.P. Oddcast and former uh, guest. Uh, of, I guess he's still a guest of our show. No, former. He's done. <laughs> he's dead to you? Uh, where have all the cowboys gone? Well, actually, let me, let me, because he, there's, there's, there's uh, let me read the line read, right? Where have all the cowboys gone? Emmett? Um, has he seen the misfits? <laughs> That's a, uh, you know what, let's, let's. Let's not answer a question with a question. Oh. I'm sorry. No, no. No need to apologize. We're <laughs> making up the rules as we go along, but I think, you know, it's probably rude. Where have all the cowboys gone? Where have all the cowboys gone? Get the line read right. Wait, do I have to start, really? This is hard. How am I supposed to do this off the top of my head? <laughs> Life not, is improv. I'm not quick like that. Life is improv. Um, no, just, the I, cowboys, they... I think Willie Nelson keeps them in a little vial in his hat, and every once in a while, like, licks it... And is allowed to be country for a little bit more, but someday, like he's gonna run out of that juice, and everyone's gonna realize. But he's a well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna expand on that and say he's the he's the problem, because after urging for years and years, mamas don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. That has worked. Zero population growth for cowboys has worked so well that there are no longer any cowboys. They're all dying off. The only cowboys there are are very very old men, and there will be no cowboys once they're gone. I think that is that is ultimately the answer. Anyone out there claiming to be a cowboy is just bullshitting. Unless they're a cowboy in the sense where they're like just flying the rules. I'm just like a cowboy. You're out there like a cowboy, not setting your password up correctly. That would be the only cowboys. They're not really cowboys. <laughs> Brody, where have all the cowboys gone? Montana? Yeah, that's correct, too. All and right. uh, I was going to say Montana myself. So. Hannah, but, Montana. Oh, wouldn't this be the most awful recurring segment? Let's do that. Just where have all the cowboys? No, no, no. <laughs> Just this random questions. Someone has to be doing this. All right, whatever, dude. I'm done with that. All right, I think it's time to take it home. We're, we're shutting. We're shutting this thing down. We're folding up. We're folding up tents. It's time to move on to the next town with our snake oil. Is that what we're peddling here? I thought we were peddling high quality nostrums. Or is it Nostrums? Anyway. Well, it's been a pleasure. This was very fun. I had a yeah, really, really... Thank you. Usually I have to lie about having a good time. I did not have to lie. Oh, so. I'm so happy. I had an okay time. Yeah. Whatever. Well, he's, he's seen into the heart of you. Emmett has seen your black, bleak, pussified heart. <laughs> Jesus. It was quite the but that's, sight. But, that's part, <laughs> but that's, as as a filmmaker, that's his job. Yeah. His job is to draw that out of you. Just draw it out, stick it on celluloid. 
Or Tycho <laughs> or toy You need to cast me as like a, a biker hick sociopath or something so you can see that part of me. Don't you think they're all pussified? Wait, what was your cop line one more time? <laughs> Fuck you, cop, you drop it. That's going to be your new line in every one of my movies. It's just gonna, I'm going to write that. <laughs> I, don't, don't you think all hick biker sociopaths are pussified at heart? I don't know. I do. ask, let's ask Daryl Duffy and J.P. Spalding that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Answer me that. Jerks. I just think they're full of literature. <laughs> well, you know, this literature <laughs> suggests that that's true. Do you have a good time, Emmett? I had a blast. Thank awesome. you guys so much. Well, hopefully, we can have you again on some on again sometime. Maybe after uh, Mirror and Missile is uh, in the can, and we can talk more about movies and uh, all yeah, this good this stuff. Was, this was fun. Yeah. Thank you guys so, so much. So until next time, I'm Brody Foster Hubbard. I am Gene George, and I'm Emmett Casey. Thank you. Oh shit! I was supposed to say something you clever. Can... <laughs> that's that's that works just fine. Oh. You want another shot at it? No, that's good. We're good? Cut the the cord.